Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. Great. We are back home in the City of Angels. The greatest trash bin there ever was. <laughs> I do love it here. No, but San Francisco was fun. Um, I was really wanting to go to Alcatraz after we talked about it last week, and I really tried, but the tickets were sold out, which was a big disappointment to me. I didn't know how much demand there was for it. Me neither. Apparently I, you have to book two weeks in advance yeah, or something crazy like, like that. I don't know if it's two or one or something, but definitely weeks. Yeah. Which I didn't realize. I tried to buy my ticket the night before and I was very sad to see that they were sold out. So Yeah. Like everything we do. I would have last minute. Yeah, I would have loved to have come on here and talked to you guys about my experience there, but I unfortunately cannot. But on the bright side, we're just a few short days away from Halloween. Are you excited? I'm excited, but you are more excited. I definitely am more excited than you. I love Halloween. It's always been a holiday that I have looked forward to. I just have extremely fond memories of Halloween as a child. Did you as a child, like, love it? I liked it when I was younger, but when I got into my teens or, like, older, kind of towards the end of when you would trick-or-treat... I didn't really like it because there was all this stress around what you would have to wear (laughs) and if it was going to be good. And I never like planned for it. And I hated any like negative judgment around your costume. So I just I've never been like super into it. Super hype with it. Yeah, that's fair. I had a very opposite experience. I've always loved it. I have extremely fond memories of me and my best friend, who also happened to be my neighbor at the time, which was very convenient, dressing up and going around our neighborhood, trick-or-treating, and then we would go to his basement where he had like a big bin of costumes and we would change our costumes and then go around the neighborhood again as if our neighbors, who we grew up with, didn't know that we were at their house like only 30 minutes prior. Hey, you know what? I am all for scamming at a young age absolutely let's do it let's conduct a little fake business little fake business no but i never thought of that oh you could totally do that huge brain huge brain energy we would have a lot of fun and then we would we would carry around like pillowcases to fill our to fill with candy and we would fill them like quite big um and then we would all gather in someone's living room and like pour all of your candy out and then trade candy it was very serious business Oh yeah, I sorted mine. Have you? Did you ever like rollerblade between houses? <laughs> Absolutely not. This is probably a hockey thing. <laughs> yeah, but definitely. You cover way much more ground. Oh, right. way more way ground. Much more ground. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Hello. Yeah, that was something that happened for hockey players because like you could hit, I don't know, two or three times the amount of houses if you were blading sure. between houses. That makes a lot of sense. More candy, more quick. <laughs> yes. We love that motto. But yeah, the story that we are going to talk about today does take place on Halloween. And not only is this person we're going to talk about pure evil, but unfortunately, he changed the way many people experience Halloween altogether. Before we get into it, I did want to give a quick trigger warning. This story does involve the death of a child. So with that being said, let's get into the story of the real life Candyman. 
Ronald Clark O'Brien was born on October 19, 1944. However, in 1974, he lived with his wife, Daneen, and their two children, 8-year-old Timothy and 5-year-old Elizabeth, in Deer Park, Texas, which was a middle-class suburb of Houston. He worked as an optician at Texas State Optical and served as a deacon for the Second Baptist Church, where he and his family attended regularly, where he also sang in the choir and oversaw the parochial bus program. Who were the first Baptists, though? (laughs) Right? These are the second Baptists, so... And there's maybe a third? Maybe. Those who knew O'Brien considered him a model citizen, and his pastor once described him as a, quote, good Christian man and an above-average father. I don't know if I would want to be known as an above-average parent. (laughs) I might want to be known as a stellar parent, like a really good the best out there parent you know what i mean best yeah i want number one exactly i actually i want custom made fridge stickers that say above average mom or dad (laughs) that's very that's our merch (laughs) right above average no 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 (laughs) we will not be doing that wait who said above average his pastor his pastor said you are an above average father congratulations yeah i don't know if i would want that title honestly but That was the way that he was described. So above average meant that Ronald decided he wanted to take his children out trick-or-treating on Halloween. The bare minimum. Yeah, literally. No, this was actually a bit out of character for Ronald because he was a very busy man and was usually tired after a long day of work. But on Halloween night in 1974, Ronald not only offered to take his kids out, but he was excited about it. Two weeks before Halloween, Ronald had even purchased costumes for his kids in preparation for their fun night. That evening, when he pulled into their driveway after work, Ronald was greeted by Timothy and Elizabeth, who were already in their costumes, ready for an evening of fun. This year was extra exciting for the kids because they were going to get to trick-or-treat with family friends. Two weeks prior, Ronald had asked his friend Jim if he and his wife and kids wanted to join forces that year and all go out together. Their night began with Ronald, his wife Danine, and their kids traveling to the home of Jim and Kathy Bates for a nice pork roast dinner before they would go out trick-or-treating. Jim and Kathy also attended their church and had two kids of their own, 11-year-old Kimberly and 9-year-old Mark, so it was perfect. Timmy and Elizabeth had friends to hang out with, and even better than that, Jim and his family lived in the Bowling Heights neighborhood in Pasadena, which was a pretty affluent neighborhood in the area. And to kids on Halloween, that meant they had a good chance of getting the big candy bars. Oh, full size? Oh, full size. That is lit. Not fun size. Mm -hmm. Full size. Mm Mm-hmm. Once everyone was finished eating, the mothers cleaned up from dinner before they all got ready to go trick-or-treating. It was a rainy Halloween night in Pasadena, Texas, but still, local children swarmed the streets, excited to go door-to-door. One of the Bates kids decided they'd rather hang back at home because of the rain, so Danine and Kathy decided they'd hang back too, but the others were unfazed by the rain, so Ronald and Jim took the three kids out. They decided since it was raining, they'd only trick-or-treat down two streets, those being Citation Street and Donorail Street. The group had come up with a system 
Jim would stand on the sidewalk waiting, and Ronald would accompany the children up to the doors to get their candy. The three kids went from house to house, yelling trick-or-treat and collecting as much candy as their little arms could carry. However, when the group came up to 4112 Donnerail, the front porch light was off, which usually means either the people who lived there were out themselves, they ran out of candy, or they just simply didn't want trick-or-treaters. So when no one answered the door, the impatient children moved on, and Jim Bates went along with the kids, following them down the wet street. But Ronald had hung back a bit before jogging back up to Jim and the kids with his hands filled with five giant pixie sticks. For those of you who aren't familiar, regular-sized pixie sticks are basically just a paper tube filled with loose-flavored sugar that you literally just dump into your mouth. However, the large ones are the same idea, but they're in a plastic tube, and they're 21 inches long. Heaven. For a child, yes. Heaven. I love those things. Oh, yeah. Who didn't? Pixie sticks, just pure sugar. Ooh, Fun Dip. Fun Dip is even better. Have I ever had Fun Dip? You just dip a sugar stick in more sugar and then eat both of the sugars? Can you say something better? Like, I I don't think so. It is funny to me, though, how it's always a flavored sugar. Yeah. Cherry. It's never sugars. You just can't do just sugar. No. And the holy grail of flavored sugars is blue raspberry, obviously. I don't know. I think it's got to be cherry. Whoa. Okay. Close second for sure. Are Are we we fighting? fighting? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. Anyway. So Ronald came running up to the kids and Jim with five of these huge pixie sticks, smiling from ear to ear like he had hit the jackpot, and said to Jim, you've got rich neighbors, look what they're handing out. Jim was a bit confused because it definitely didn't look like anyone had been home at the last house, but the kids were excited to get these giant treats and they continued on. The group went around to only a few more houses before they decided they should turn in since the rain hadn't let up. They were so wet at that point that Jim and Ronald started shoving some of the kids' candy in their pockets since their trick-or-treat bags had been soaked and their candy was getting soggy. Once they got back to Jim Bates' home, Ronald told Jim he'd be right inside. He was just going to go grab some lollipops for the kids that were in his car. After only a few moments, Ronald opened the door to the Bates' home to hear the kids excitedly looking through their stashes. Ronald then pulled out the candy from his pockets to distribute to the kids, including the five large pixie sticks he had been keeping dry for them in the sleeve of his raincoat. He gave one to each child, along with the lollipops that he had gotten out of his car, which left one pixie stick left over, since Jim Bates's generous neighbor had given him five, and there were only four kids. But in that moment, the Bates home doorbell rang, and Ronald went to the door to find a group of trick-or-treaters at the door with their bags open. Among those children was 10-year-old Whitney Parker, who Ronald had recognized from church. Ronald handed each child a handful of bubblegum and then held up the one giant pixie stick and said, Who wants this? All the kids started jumping up and down, saying, Me, me, as he waved it around above their heads. But Whitney raised his hand the highest and excitedly yelled, I go to your church. And with that, Ronald turned to him and dropped the remaining pixie stick in his bag. 
Hey, you got to be the best, right? Yeah. Got to stick out. Got to jump the highest. Got to lay it on thick. Pull the strings. Yeah. Not long after that, the O'Brien family said their goodbyes to the Bates family, and Ronald brought the kids back home to 746 Parktown while his wife spent some time with friends. Once they had gotten back home, Timothy got out of his Planet of the Apes costume, Elizabeth got out of hers, and the two started getting ready for bed since, after all, it was a school night. But before they brushed their teeth and went to bed, Ronald told them that they could each choose one piece of candy that they could eat that night. So, of course, Timmy chose the giant pixie stick. I mean, what kid could resist a gigantic tube of sugar? So Ronald helped him get the staple out of the top of the stick. However, the powdered sugar had been clumped together since it had gotten a little bit damp in the rain. So he took the pixie stick and rolled it in his palms to break up the sugar for Timmy before helping him tilt his head back and pour the sugar in his mouth. But when the sugar hit his tongue, Timmy made a face because he said the sugar was too bitter and he didn't like it. But being that this was his one choice of candy for the night, Ronald poured his son a glass of Kool-Aid and told him that he could just wash it down with that. Ronald then tucked him into bed and shut the door behind him. But not 30 seconds later, Timmy called out to his father complaining of severe stomach pain. Ronald came back into his room where Timmy very quickly got extremely sick and started to throw up. He then took his son into the bathroom, but by that point, Timmy had started to become unresponsive and began to convulse. Ronald quickly called 911, and an ambulance arrived at their home within minutes. The ambulance had been parked nearby, and this was considered an excellent response time. However, by the time they were on the way to the hospital, it was already too late. By 10.40 p.m., Timothy had died for what was, for now, an unknown reason. My God, that's so quick. It was extremely quick and very severe. Oh, that's gut-wrenching. Within, what, three minutes, your entire life changes. Yes. Bill Lanier was a detective with the Pasadena Police Department. He had just been promoted six months earlier, and when he arrived at Southmore Hospital, he was told that Timmy was already gone. So now all he could do was interview Timmy's family to try to figure out what went wrong. Ronald O'Brien told Detective Lanier about everything that happened that night. They went out trick-or-treating, they got back home, Timmy ate the pixie stick, and after tucking his son into bed, he became extremely ill. Actually, twice while attempting to explain the events of that night, Ronald claimed he was ill and went to the bathroom himself, but when he was offered treatment, he refused. At first, Lanier wasn't very suspicious of Ronald O'Brien, Two weeks earlier, O'Brien had celebrated his 30th birthday, and Lanier later said he, quote, was a big guy, but he talked soft, almost feminine. He had a real hangdog look. He wasn't crying or bawling or anything, but there was no reason to believe he was involved. But it didn't take doctors long to figure out what had happened. The doctors examined Timothy's stomach contents and found 16 milligrams of cyanide. His blood had absorbed 0.4 milligrams, and a fatal dose is 0.2 and 0.3 milligrams. He had actually ingested enough potassium cyanide to kill two adult men. From what Ronald could tell them, they knew it sounded like Timmy was somehow poisoned, and the likely source was the candy that he received while trick-or-treating. 
Police quickly knew that the only logical thing that could have done it was the pixie stick, so they quickly sprung into action. And thankfully, they were able to retrieve the other four pixie sticks before the children had eaten them. However, Whitney Parker had come extremely close and was actually found asleep in his bed holding the pixie stick while he slept. Oh my god. He had tried to get it open, but he fell asleep before he could get the staple out of the top. No way. Yeah. He literally was holding the pixie stick in his hand as he slept when the police showed up and they found it. Wow. Just by chance. Mm-hmm. Just because his little boy hands couldn't get a staple out of the top. Thank God. Mm-hmm. A representative from the company that manufactures giant pixie sticks testified that the plastic straw containing the candy was always heat sealed and never stapled. So it was a very clear sign that these candies had been tampered with. And all the pixie sticks had been handed over to Dr. Jakimzik, who was a medical examiner. The doctor tested Timothy's candy. However, there was no traces of the poison, but it was missing the amount that he had already eaten. So they tested the first few inches of the other tubes, and each of them contained a fatal dose of cyanide. They discovered that the top two inches of each of the pixie sticks had been replaced with cyanide granules, which is why it had initially tasted bitter to Jimmy. He didn't even have any sugar in what he ingested. He was just eating straight poison. Police knew that this definitely wasn't an accident and immediately started going door to door in in the Pasadena area where the Bates and O'Briens had been trick-or-treating. They had asked Ronald what house he had gotten the pixie sticks from. He told them that they had been trick-or-treating down Citation Street and Donnerail Street and it came from a brown house on one of those two streets, but he wasn't sure exactly which one it was. They had been to a bunch of houses that night, and Ronald recalled he didn't even see a person's face when he was handed the candy. He had just seen an arm stretch out from inside the house with the pixie sticks in hand before they were given to him. So they literally didn't even look at him? He said that someone opened the door at this brown house and literally just stuck their arm out with pixie sticks in their hand and handed them to him. He then took them and then gave them to the kids. Hmm? That's what he said. You ever had that happen to you? Absolutely not. That is super weird. Yes. Just like the hand. Yeah, no, it's super, super weird. Almost like it's a lie. So. Wow. Well. Is anyone home? Maybe I'm gullible. Maybe. (laughs) I don't know. I guess I would believe that. Well, police were. Above average dead. True. He said that he knew that the person who gave him the candy was a man because the arm was very hairy. That night, police had taken Ronald in a police car to drive the streets and try to identify the house where he had gotten the poisoned candy, but that night he just wasn't able to. So police decided to just call it a night and give Ronald a few days to see if he could remember anything else. The shock of the residents of Citation Street and Donnerail Street was intense. This was a tight-knit community, the kind of place where everyone knew each other. Many of the residents refused to believe that one of their own was capable of doing something so horrible. But as the days went on, each of them cooperated with police when they came knocking on their doors to ask questions. Many detectives worked around the clock on this case and were working on their days off. 
They had mapped out the two streets and made a plan to interview everyone they could to find a break in the case. Detective Turpinseed and Police Captain Rhodes were convinced that the person who handed out the candy lived on these streets. They had even confiscated some candy from each of the houses for testing and also put the information out to the public that parents need to check their children's candy and if any of it looks suspicious, they should bring it to the police station. By the next day, an entire room at the police station had been filled with candy. But out of all of the candy that had been brought in, there weren't any other pixie sticks which meant that the only poisoned pixie sticks had gone to Ronald and Jim's kids, plus Whitney, which was very strange. This was very confusing for detectives because they couldn't figure out why only this small group of kids would have been given this poisoned candy and why it had been given out in general. After a few days, the police had brought Ronald back out to the neighborhood during the day, and sure enough, he was able to point out the exact house where he had gotten the candy from. That house was 24112 Donnerail Drive. And as the police and Ronald pulled up, the man who owned the house and had given Ronald the candy was standing outside on his lawn, which is what Ronald told them as they pulled up. Even though he had previously told them that he hadn't seen a face, just an arm. But as they're pulling up and they see this man, Ronald tells the police, this is the guy that gave me the candy. It's interesting. Very interesting. This man was Courtney Melvin. He worked at Houston's William P. Hobby Airport, which is where the police cornered him and arrested him in front of everyone he worked with. Although the community was relieved that this crazy man had been caught, the story very quickly fell apart because, thankfully for Melvin, he had an incredibly strong alibi for Halloween night. He hadn't even gotten home until nearly 11 p.m. on Halloween since he had been working. He was a shift supervisor at Hobby Airport, which meant that he had more than 200 people who could vouch for him. Wow. So you couldn't get a more airtight alibi if you tried. Yeah, I was like, find me a better alibi. Yeah. Mrs. Melvin and the Melvin children treated, quote unquote, visitors until they ran out of candy at 6.45 p.m. And after that, they didn't answer the door. Mrs. Melvin also said she never saw Ronald, Jimmy Bates, or any of the children who had been with them. So they never answered the door. Dad's story's looking shady. A little bit. This was great news for Courtney Melvin, but very bad news for Ronald, because he had insisted that Melvin was the man who handed him the candy, so because of that, police started to look into Ronald a bit closer. On November 1st, the day after Timmy's murder, Ronald had his first meeting with the funeral director. Ronald informed him that he would need copies of the death certificate to give to the insurance agency, one for each policy. And when he was asked how many he would need, Ronald said, I need six copies. What? You have six insurance policies on your child? Yes. Timmy had died on a Thursday night, and by the next morning, Friday morning, Ronald called the insurance company to cash in on his life insurance policy. Oh my god. I mean, what the fuck do you say to that? 
No, I mean, there's not much to say. It's just um, horrifying. I can't even imagine the type of evil you need to be to do something like this. After the life insurance agency had received these death certificates for Timmy, the insurance agent Robert Ballow Jr. decided to call the police and let them know about the policies and how they found them suspicious. You think? He also let them know that Ronald began opening these insurance policies months ago. And only weeks before Halloween, Ronald wanted to open two life insurance policies on both of his children for $20,000 each. But Robert Ballow let him know that for the same price, he could buy policies that only had a current face value of $5,000, but that would go up to $25,000 when Timmy and Elizabeth turned 23, and there would be even larger cash returns in their adult years. So it made almost zero sense to do what he wanted to do. And Robert Ballow was like, this is very clear cut. Like you're being kind of silly here. But Ronald didn't want to hear any of it and demanded that he get the higher immediate policies. In the months prior, he had purchased two $10,000 policies as well. So that, along with the other life insurance policies he had taken out, meant that if one or both of his children died, he stood to get a lot of money. I'm sorry, does he have a wife? Yeah. She didn't know about most of the policies that he had taken out, but she did know about one of them. And we're going to talk about that later. Do people get life insurance policies for their kids? So from what I understand, it you, like you can take out life insurance policies for your children kind of as like a nest egg. So there is like something to that, but they were struggling financially. So with the fact that they were struggling financially and could barely pay their own bills, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, it made absolutely zero sense for them to be taking out life insurance policies on their children when they could barely afford like rent or keeping the electricity on or feeding their children. So it just made no sense. And he's an optometrist and he can't pay the bills? Optrician, yeah. Well, okay, so we're going to get into that. Why don't we keep going? Yeah, I was just highlighting, like, I don't think it's normal for people to take out insurance policies on their kids. I certainly don't know. It would definitely be a weird thing. It's usually you're on yourself, you know, for your kids. Sure. You know? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I can't say I know anything about taking out life insurance policies on children. So I don't, I'm not sure how common it is or not, but it does definitely seem weird, especially to take out multiple. Like that's very sketchy. So with the life insurance policies that he had taken out on his children, he stood to get a lot of money if these kids died. And police soon found out that Ronald was deep in debt and needed that money badly. They also learned that Ronald had a very difficult time holding down a job. He had been employed by 21 different companies over a 10-year period and was fired from each of them for negligence or fraudulent behavior. In the fall of 1974, 30-year-old Ronald O'Brien was on the brink of being fired again by his current employer, Texas State Optical, because he was suspected of stealing money. But this would have been a huge problem because Ronald was very deep in the hole. He was more than $100,000 in debt. He had defaulted on several bank loans, he owned money to the US government, and his car was on the verge of being repossessed. However, his take-home salary was only $150 a week, 
barely enough to cover food and rent, so this wasn't even close to making a dent in the huge amounts of money that he owed. How did he get into $100,000 in debt in the 70s? Was he a gambling addict? I mean, I don't know. I guess he just had a lot of, like, loans that he took out, and he wasn't paying them, and he wasn't, like, making car payments. I don't know. He had a lot of issues that he wasn't taking care of, and he was obviously very irresponsible with money. Clearly, but I'm just thinking, I mean, his salary is, what, seven or $8,000? I mean, it's more than 10 times your yearly salary. That'd be like, I don't know, in today's money, probably like over half a million in debt. You get like $40,000 a year. Yeah, I mean, he got into this debt. I mean, over the 10-year period, he was fired from 21 different jobs. So he clearly was doing some shady stuff. He was not a good or trustworthy person. So I I couldn't say how he managed to get himself that deep into debt, but he did. And this is like his solution to getting himself out of it, which is I can't even say how despicable that is or how evil a person can be to do something like this. But he's clearly a monster. One of his co-workers reported that Ronald O'Brien was always talking about his debts and would be constantly adding up his bills on an adding machine and making plans, just in general. Police had actually found a piece of paper from an adding machine where Ronald had added up all of his debts, and it almost came to what he stood to collect if his children should die. When police sat down with Ronald's wife, Danine, and told her what they had discovered, she just put her face in her hands and cried. And it was almost as if she wasn't surprised. She had informed police that she had known about the $10,000 life insurance policies that Ronald had taken out in February, but she and Ronald had fought about these policies because at the time, they were barely making ends meet. She didn't understand why her husband insisted on paying $108 a month on life insurance policies for their young children. Danine also told police that she had no knowledge of the higher life insurance policies and had absolutely nothing to do with the murder of her son. But these were blaringly huge red flags. And another extremely weird thing that happened was after Timothy's death and more specifically on the day and evening of his funeral. First of all, Ronald's brother-in-law, John Tucker Jr., rode with the O'Brien family to the cemetery to bury Timmy. And he claimed that on the way... Ronald had a vision while he was driving. This vision revealed to him the real house where the poison candy had come from and the rough hand of a man holding out five purple and white pixie sticks. John Tucker also claimed that Ronald showed extreme interest in any news surrounding his son's death. Not only was he watching the news around the clock, but he was talking to almost any reporter he could, you know, get himself in front of, almost as if he loved being in the spotlight. At night, after his son's funeral, he wanted his family to stay up with him and watch the evening news since he had performed a hymn in church and he had put his son's name into the hymn while he was singing it. So he literally just wanted his family to stay up and watch him sing. I mean, he just continues to sink lower. I mean, how do you parade around like this? Actually, someone in the comments of one of the YouTube videos that I was watching about this case, said that they were a member of the Second Baptist Church in Pasadena when this happened, and they knew the O'Brien family. 
And she said that she remembered him singing in the church service a few days after Tim had died. And before he sang, he spoke about how nothing worse could have happened to him and his wife than the death of his son. And he just was really hamming it up for the for the crowd. And it's just like disgusting. I guess at the time you believe it, but I don't know how that feels to find out later. That he's just a complete fraud. Not even like fraud. I mean, it's just another level. Yeah, like true monster. And he was like a community man, you know, he was like in the church, he was like a part of the community, he was singing the hymns, and he was, you know, very involved in his, I said community like four times, but in his community. So it must have been a very big shock to everyone around him. So Ronald asked his family to stay up and watch the news with him after Timmy's funeral, that way they could watch him sing. But his family obviously didn't stay up to watch the news. They were emotionally and physically exhausted from the day. But the next morning at breakfast, Ronald excitedly told them about the news segment and everything they said about Timmy, but most importantly, what they said about him. That day, John Tucker also said he had a strange conversation with Ronald about the insurance money that he was going to get from Timmy's death. He asked John what he thought he should do with it if he should pay the bills, or if he should put a down payment on a new house. He also mentioned it to his sister-in-law, and he mentioned taking a vacation with the money since they deserved it after all the grief. A fucking vacation? Yeah, he talked about taking a vacation. He was talking about buying a new car, or getting a new house, or going on vacation with his family because they deserved it. Meanwhile, he's literally $100,000 in debt, but I mean... Not that that means anything at this point. I just can't believe he's killed this kid and he wants a new car. Yeah, I mean, he very much did that. But if you really, if you think about it, he attempted to kill five. Yeah. So we'll talk more about that. But Daneen also reported that her husband had given her very little attention or support throughout everything. And not only that, but he barely seemed affected at all by Timmy's death and was in pretty good spirits. Ronald O'Brien was brought in for questioning at that point because police are like, you're a psycho. However, when they brought up the insurance policies, he was shocked that they knew anything about them. He told them that he had purchased the $10,000 policies in February, but left out the policies that he had purchased just weeks before Halloween as if they weren't going to find out about them. They then had him take a polygraph test, which he failed, unsurprisingly. The police then got a search warrant for his home, and when they served the warrant, they were able to find a pair of scissors and a pocket knife. The blades of the scissors had a lavender plastic substance on them and an undetermined purplish stain. The knife blade was also coated with the wax or plastic substance and had clear crystal particles that were water-soluble and contained sugar. They did test this substance on the knife and it came back inconclusive and they never actually found any cyanide in his home or, you know, in his possession, but it was pretty cut and dry that this was the scissor that he used and the knife that they suspect he used to funnel the cyanide into the pixie sticks. So because of all of that, on November 5th, just days after his son's passing, Ronald O'Brien was arrested and charged with the murder of his son, Timothy O'Brien. He was also charged with the attempted murder of his daughter, Elizabeth, who was only five, 
and three other children that he knowingly had given poison to. I mean, this man is already absolutely revolting and evil for killing his children for insurance money, but it goes so much further when you think about what he was trying to accomplish. I mean, in theory, this is terrible to say, but he only needed to kill his children, but he attempted to kill three other children. He wanted those three other kids to die. That way it wouldn't look as suspicious for him when his children died. So the the three other kids were literally just collateral damage. I don't know. I don't know how a person's brain works like that. Like, how do you come to that conclusion? I don't know. There's. I mean, he's a psycho. There's just no. There's literally no empathy. No. At all. Nothing at all. For your own children, I just can't. I can't wrap my head around that. No, seriously, he was willing to take the lives of five innocent children for his own personal gain. I can't think of a more disgusting thing. Yeah, and they're all five. They're all really under ten. Young, completely innocent. They're all under ten for sure. When police presented Ronald O'Brien with these mountains of evidence, he still maintained his innocence. Of course he did. No matter what they threw at him, he denied his involvement. And in court, he pled not guilty. He claimed that the police had wrongfully accused him and they were wasting their time going after him when there was still a crazy person on the loose. And although the police had searched O'Brien's house and found some pretty damning evidence, they never found cyanide or figured out where he had actually gotten it from. However, it had come out in court that Ronald had been talking with people in his life about cyanide and where to get it. In August of 1974, Ronald had requested to his manager at Texas State Optical that they stock up on cyanide to use to clean gold frames. But this request was definitely unusual because although cyanide had been used to clean metals in the past, it had not been used in the optical business for over 20 years at that point, since they had already adopted more efficient and safer options for cleaning the metal, his manager said, no, we're not going to get cyanide. And about three weeks later, he repeated the request and was referred to a person with more authority than the branch manager. In early September, Ronald called his friend Bobby Terry, who was employed by Arco Chemical Company. He told Terry that he was taking a chemistry course in San Jacinto College and felt that his instructor was not familiar with the numerous types of cyanide. The two then discussed the varieties of cyanide and the availability of the chemical. Ronald then asked where cyanide might be purchased, and Terry referred him to several chemical companies in their area, including Curtin Matheson Scientific Company. And finally, under the guise of quote-unquote curiosity, Ronald asked Terry about what a fatal human dose of cyanide would be, along with the procedures used to detect unknown chemicals in the body of a deceased person. I mean, you can't get more clear cut than that. Like he's literally asking what a lethal dose is and how you can hide it. And a salesperson, David Lee Jackson at the Houston area chemical outlet recalled that not long before Halloween, a man had come in to see about purchasing cyanide, but left when he found out that he had to buy it in bulk. The man from the store said he couldn't identify O'Brien, but he remembered that his customer was wearing a beige or blue smock like a doctor, which was exactly the uniform that Ronald O'Brien wore to work. So it was almost definitely him. Yes, but I feel like none of it's 
the final nail. Yeah. You know, could that person who sold it to him pick him out of a lineup? Yeah, it is, I guess, all circumstantial, but it's a lot. It's a lot of circumstantial evidence. I'm just really hoping that there is something else. On October 23rd, 1974, Ronald had informed the Medical Branch Credit Union that he expected a large sum of money before the end of 1974 and could pay off his debts by January 1st, 1975. He also informed a co-worker that he intended to quit his job at Texas State Optical on November 15th. But Daneen testified in court that she had no idea of this plan to quit, and she had no reason to expect a large sum of money before the end of the year. In court, Ronald testified on his own behalf, like a psycho, and completely denied all guilt, and was still hamming it up for the cameras and the reporters. His defense blamed the tainted candy on some untraceable boogeyman. However, his friends, family, and co-workers all testified against him. And in court, Ronald was also kind of messing with Mike Hinton, who was the prosecutor. He would, like, wink at him or smile. And one time in court, after being given the title of the Candyman, he handed Hinton a Tootsie Roll. Imagine being titled the Candyman because you knowingly poisoned your own children and the children of your friends and church members. And then you give the prosecutor a Tootsie Roll as a joke. There's just, there's no I'm, words. I'm like not surprised. And there's, yeah, there's no words. Like, it's not funny. It's all like uncomfortable laughter, but it's like, what well, I just can't believe how he could do that. I mean, I can't believe how he could do any of it. The Tootsie Roll is the very least of the issues here, but it's just like, seriously, you're trying to make a joke in this too? Whoa. On June 3rd, 1975, it took just 46 minutes for a jury to return a guilty verdict for one charge of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. An hour later, it was decided that Ronald would be sentenced to death. He sat on death row until 1984. On March 31st of that year, Ronald O'Brien was killed by lethal injection, and literally until the moment he died, he claimed that he was innocent. And his last words were him saying that he forgave the people who put him in that chair, who had a hand in his death. Outside of the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, a crowd of around 300 people gathered to hear that Ronald O'Brien had been killed. And once they had gotten word that it was over, they shouted trick or treat and threw candy at the anti-death penalty protesters which is, in my opinion, quite dark. However, if anyone deserved the death penalty, it's it's Ronald O'Brien, so I don't feel too bad about it. But I was just like, whoa, this is kind of intense. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things to parse there. I was going to say earlier, I'm scared that he was going to get off. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that they handed him a guilty verdict and... I was also going to say, if there is a time for the death penalty, it's when someone tries to kill five children yeah, and kills their own kid and then is sanctimoniously singing a hymn he wrote about it. Disgusting. But man, it's real. Like maybe not the time for that at the protesters. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I, I didn't really know how to feel about that one because it, it's, it's really like just kind of dark, like yelling trick or treat and throwing candy at the, 
I don't know. <laughs> I was like, is this really the time like a child died? Yeah, you know? no, not. Yeah, just no. Yeah. Not the time. So um, anyway, I couldn't really find much about Daneen or Elizabeth and where they are today. But I did see something that said Elizabeth has managed to put the incident behind her and raise a family. That's pretty much all the information I have about the people who were affected by this awful, evil man. But that is unfortunately the tragic tale of the candy man yeah i guess i'm i'm glad that she was able to put that past them and continue to raise her family yeah i hope that she has a good life i just wish her well yeah she deserves privacy and for sure happiness yeah i mean to the very end ronald o'brien never admitted what he did he never apologized to Daneen. He never apologized to Jim Bates, who took him into his home and brought his children out with their children and trusted him. And like, and he just never took accountability. Nobody really got any kind of closure. Not that you can really move past this kind of intense tragedy, but just the fact that he never confessed is just a huge slap in the face and just so evil beyond words. Like all of this is so messed up in so many ways. And because of what he did, it changed the way people look at Halloween forever. I mean, to this day, you hear people talking about checking their kids' candy and making sure you don't, you know, let your kids ingest things that aren't completely properly packaged. And although like the general consensus for the whole Halloween candy poisoning and tampering with is a myth, it has happened. It has technically happened. So I do understand the, you know, craziness behind it because it's such a, for many people, I don't know, joyous, like exciting, magical thing for your kids and as a family. And it's just to have something like that tampered with and completely ruined is just so tragic. Yeah, all from this one person. Yeah. But anyways, why don't we have a bit of a palate cleanser? What is your good thing this week? Tell me something nice. Give me some good information uh, that helps me um, breathe, shall we? Yes, you like dessert. I love dessert. Correct. I mean, please. Me? Sweets. Mm-hmm. So I have found a new dessert that I freaking love, which is cherry sorbet. But I bought frozen cherries, and then you pretty much just put that water, sugar, and a little bit of lemon juice, and it turned out really good. Yeah, it like, really was so it's good. It's <laughs> really good. And very easy. So, yeah, it took me two minutes to make, and it is my new favorite dessert. And I've been eating it all day, and I'm moving on to other flavors very quickly. I am excited to reap the benefits of the new flavors and trials and tribulations of the sorbet journey that we will be on together. It's a journey. That's right. My good thing is that we have found a video game that we're playing together, and it's very fun. Um, I believe it's called It Takes Two. Oh, yeah. It's on Xbox One for those of you who are gamers. (laughs) I'm definitely not a gamer, but I have an Xbox, and... 
uh, we were looking for something to play and it's just very fun. It's like a, it's about this like couple who is getting a divorce and then they turn into their like kids toys, yeah. plural, and they have to basically like figure out how to turn themselves back into people so that they can take care of their daughter. I don't know. But in being the toys, they have to like complete a bunch of challenges. They get closer. They don't break up. I think we haven't finished it yet, but it's very fun. Yeah, I know. It's really well done. There's a story arc. The game is like very much well done with a lot of detail. It's very creative. Yeah. And it's really fun. It's really similar to like Mario. Kind of. Like all the controls are pretty much the same. Yeah, kind of. And also I'm not really like someone who plays video games often at all and I can do it. So I like I I feel very uh, intimidated by a lot of video games because I'm just always the one that's bad at it. And it makes me frustrated because I like being good at things, but I'm actually pretty good at this game. So if I can do it, then you can, too. Yep. We love a game that you can be good at immediately. Absolutely. But it's not too easy. Like, you got to think a little bit, you know? Right. It's fun. Anyways. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you would like to vote on an upcoming bonus episode, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival that you would like to share with us and possibly hear on an upcoming listener's episode, send it to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense and just keep breathing yeah yeah